I am Marlon Jones, the Career Skills Architect, and this is View from the Big Chair Podcast, Examining the Cost to Be the Boss. The purpose of this podcast is to share information with students in sports administration programs and with young professionals and those who are underemployed in sports administration. We talk with guests who sit in the big chair, those persons who are directors of athletics, who are head coaches, commissioners, or directors of different areas within athletic administration. We learn from their journey, and we also learn what skill sets they look for when they are hiring for positions so that you know how to prepare so that you can get to your own big chair. Today on View from the Big Chair, examining the cost to be the boss, we are joined by Sean Frazier, who is the Vice President and Director of Athletics and Recreation at Northern Illinois University. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate you. Uh, Sean, tell our listeners how and when you fell in love with sports. Wow. Wow. How long do we have? Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, you know, it's something that um, it's always been a part of my my life uh, from playing basketball in the streets uh, to uh, being organized camps. You know, sports has always been a part of, of my household uh, and my upbringing. So uh, it goes back uh, uh, even back to my father's memories uh, of having some type of organized Pop Warner football to PAL to track and field. So um, for many years, I thought it defined me as a person. Um, as an older man, obviously that that wasn't the case. We we uh, uh, took things from sport: winning, losing, humility, uh, trust, respect, uh, and it molded me into the person I, I'm in uh, that I'm today. But Sport was definitely a part of being a tool of education for me uh, and also, quite frankly, to to get me to spaces that I probably wouldn't have achieved if I hadn't had uh, uh, sport and athletics as a part of that driver. So, yeah, I'm really fortunate, um, humbled uh, by it, and I really appreciate to have and still be involved with uh, athletics at the level that I'm at right now. So walk our listeners through your career journey. Okay. Well, you know, it, it started with uh, uh, athletics and at a, at a young age playing football. Uh, grew up in uh, Queens, New York, and then transitioned out to Long Island, New York. Uh, you might hear some of that New York accent that will come out at it's some point. It's still there. <laughs> yeah, it's there a little bit. Uh, my wife also is from, from New York City, uh, from Spanish Harlem. We actually met in uh in, in Boston, believe it or not, uh, when I had a brief coaching career. But from there, to, to, to tell you straight, it was, um, you know, having an opportunity to play football at the University of Alabama. Uh, played a glorious four years, um, had some injuries, um, was always looking to be involved in intercollegiate athletics after playing my playing day. So I went to a coaching career, like a lot of, a lot of folks do. That led me up into New England area at Boston University, where I met my bride, beautiful Rosa Frazier. I got a shout out to her. Uh, and then from there, um, 
uh, just like most coaches do, looking for opportunities. An assistant coach took me uh, or gave me an opportunity at the University of Maine and uh, to continue my coaching um, um, career. Uh, and then for Maine was really the, the, the time where I branched out to different areas uh, and uh, higher education administration specifically. Um, I had a mentor, Dr. Sherry Clark. Um, she's just wonderful. She's always been that driver to me and really challenged me to do things larger than myself, uh, throwing the rope back over the fence to somebody else. And I love her to death. And uh, she's still in the space, specifically in the DEI space. Uh, she was the Dean of Multicultural Student Affairs. She tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, um, this is great that you're recruiting young uh, uh, people of color to University of Maine to play football. But you know what? You have to mentor them. You have to do things that, quite frankly, are going to be with them for the rest of their lives. So that got me thinking. And then I actually made a transition from coaching to administration uh, from there. Uh, challenged me, you know, making sure I went back to school and got a graduate degree. So I'm, I'm a proud University of Maine or no Black Bear alumni. Uh, got a, a, a graduate degree there, but then transitioned to athletic administration, became assistant athletic director uh, there. So that that was something that was a critical juncture where I was trying to go seek a, a career in uh, coaching, but took the other road and then really understood the academy and higher education administration and what that was and what that is. But quite frankly, um, students and people of color, access and opportunity, all the things that were critical for my development. It was almost like a light being turned on. And I credit Dr. Sherry Clark for doing that for me and opening up my horizons. So from there, I actually uh, spent a number of years, seven, eight years at the University of Maine. And then from there, I got my first director of athletic position at the Manhattanville College back in the great state of New York where I was born and was raised. Um, Division three institution, um, also, um, uh, a, a president who saw that he wanted to expand athletics to help recruitment and wanted to, wanted to start men's and women's ice hockey. I missed that part of my journey, but when I at BU and at University of Maine, solid hockey programs, national championship caliber division one programs. And that's what was the recruitment strategy with this president um, at Manhattanville to start men's and women's ice hockey. So I was a part of that process, did that. Uh, and uh, had an opportunity to be a director of athletics at a very young age, actually at age 30. How about a very that? Young, a very young time. Uh, my mentor, uh, Stan Johnson, uh, from the NCAA, we were talking about him. He was uh, introduced in my life when I was at the, at the University of Maine and uh, was helping me through a lot of this, too, as well as a close friend. Uh, so from, from Manhattanville, I was tapped again to go to another, another hockey school, Clarkson University, which is upstate New York uh, by Canada. Uh, to start again, ice hockey, women's hockey, uh, ice hockey at that time uh, at the Division One level. Uh, so you can see the hockey theme uh, kind of going through. Uh, so from spending a number of years there, Clarkson went back to the uh, New England area, uh, back to Boston area at Merrimack College, which is about 60 miles north of, of Boston. My wife's family reside in the uh, uh, Jamaica Plain, other uh, uh, areas of Boston, the suburbs, what have you. So it was a really good fit. I was going to stay there for a good length of my time uh, until I got a call from uh, Barry Alvarez and, and uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, and really was really going to shake my career in the Northeast. But uh, at that time, uh, Wisconsin won back-to-back -back national titles in both men's and women's ice hockey wow. since 2006. And he was looking for somebody to understand ice hockey, but also to have the understanding of academics, athletics, football, 
and the rest is history. I actually took a visit. I uh, really fell in love with Madison and what Coach Alvarez was doing. Uh, so uh, well, packed up my stuff. And my first Midwest experience was at the University of Wisconsin, which was quite interesting in a ride. Uh, my wife followed. <laughs> it might have been re- re- reluctantly at that point, but um, she actually had a thriving career and then became a um, a clinical law professor at the University of Wisconsin, too. Okay. So it kind of worked out there. Uh, uh, from from that perspective, trying to balance the two. So I spent about six years uh, at University of, of Wisconsin-Madison, did a lot of great things, multiple Rose Bowls, national championships, just a great laboratory for me. Picked up another advanced degree, another another graduate degree. Felt I needed to keep my, my sword sharp to make sure that the shared governance part of higher education and the understanding behind that was there. So it's always to be, again, always self-service to, to get that done. And then, and then uh, from there, um, uh, I was tapped to, to come to Northern Illinois, um, and I've been here since 2013 as a director of athletics, about nine years so far. So we've had a great run, and uh, it's kind of interesting how hockey, ice hockey, which I've never played uh, in my entire life, was a vehicle that really shaped a lot of what I've done. I was also the chair, uh, I believe I was the first African-American chair of the Division One Men's Ice Hockey Committee. So you know, it's interesting to have that story that doesn't come out unless you ask the question. But, um, yeah, that's my that's my story. Yeah. We hear so much about what team sports teach people. What did you learn playing football at Alabama that helped prepare you for your career? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, uh, humility, understanding, respect, uh, quite frankly, the ability to, to, to have confidence uh, and gain confidence. Um, uh, but most of all, it's about winning uh, courageously and losing courageously uh, mm. and understanding what that means, the humility behind that. Sport really helped me with that, with that process. And it's still to this day, you know, obviously I, I do it at a different level um, from an administrator or watching our, our young people compete. But sport really uh, enabled me to use this platform for good uh, and my voice in a way to be able to help others regardless if it's our student-athletes, our staff, uh, our faculty. Um, it gives me an opportunity to be in certain spaces that, quite frankly, I would not be able to, to be. Um, and then I use that as a teachable moment, as a tool, again, of education to help folks realize their potential and their goals and objectives. So um, I'm really fortunate to be able to have this platform. I say it daily to my staff, uh, to my family, and the folks that I serve. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to be able to teach, have those teachable moments. And we see that throughout our time, from George Floyd to COVID, to all the things that affect our country. Sport is a microcosm of what we do in America, in our society. You know, Harry Edwards, the famed author, uh, a mentor, a person that I've read copious amount of things about, often talked about how sport in North American culture mirror itself and, and quite frankly, are a microcosm of today's society. So I, I, I live through that because that's the passion that I have is competition in athletics. Speaking of COVID, I know it was hard managing an athletic department during the pandemic. What skill sets did you have to call on to get through that period? Oof. Wow. Yeah, I, I've been asked that a number of times, especially now as we're trying to Climb out of COVID, right? Uh, but we're seeing new variants and new strands uh, uh, of the virus still kind of creep through right now. 
I, you know, it was it was an interesting situation. We were actually one of the first institutions to to suspend football. Uh, and my president, Lisa Freeman, who's who's uh, uh, who's a medical doctor, but just courageous, uh, unbelievable leader. Um, this was a tough one. And the skill sets that we had to use to go in to ascertain that this was the right thing to do, but also most importantly, uh, keep people safe. And uh, it really tapped us. <laughs> and, we're, and it continues to do that. I don't want to make it sound like that COVID is over because it's certainly not. But during that time of the height of the, the issue where we didn't have rapid testing, we didn't understand what exactly the impacts were. It was a real courageous decision to suspend football or fall sports, excuse me, uh, until we had the right adequate um, uh, testing um, uh, pieces in place or medical advisory committees, uh, more understanding about what was going on with the virus. And I think it really tested our ability to lead, uh, to be a servant leader, <laughs> to be in a servant leadership, but more importantly, making definitive decisions that were in the best interest in the safety of all that were involved. So I think what I learned the most and I continue to learn is that it's, you know, you're going to make mistakes. Okay. Um, it, no one's perfect, but the ability to research and the ability to, um, to do things in a way to inform and be transparent about what the outcomes could be, is going to be extremely beneficial to everyone because everybody wants their, their thing, right? There's right. a lot of private agendas. There's a lot of people, a lot of money on the line, a lot of, a lot of impact that these decisions make. But at the end of the day, keeping people safe, people keeping people alive, keeping people, quite frankly, in a condition of readiness, those things are going to be paramount. And as a leader, um, we all have to lead from the place that we were at. So if I'm the AD, I'm doing my thing. I'm the baseball coach. I'm doing that, that thing. I'm the individual who is is, uh, is pushing snow or throwing the trash out, no matter where you are, you need to lead from that particular seat and you need to be accountable and responsible for the actions that go down. So I've learned that value part of everyone, that, that ability to work together and create a shared agenda, even more so now than, be, you know, before COVID. Before. Now, fundraising is always hard, but you managed to set fundraising records for two of your premier events with a virtual format. How did you manage that? It's it's my people, my team. I, I have to give kudos to, you know, uh, the staff that I work with. Man, they're good. You know, I I, I wake up sometimes in a cold sweat. So oh my goodness, somebody's gonna take my people. Don't take my people. They're good. <laughs> So, no, I think that those particular formats, you know, and, and it was a lot to do with Husky Nation. You know, our people were really craving, just like many institutions, you know, the ability to go to events, the ability to see their, their teams, the, the, to see the athletes. You know, our folks are really passionate. You know, we have over 240,000 living alums. And about wow. This old, and just over 200,000 of them live right here in Chicagoland. So not that far away from the university here. Okay. So. So, so, you know, that virtual event gave an opportunity for something that they were thirsting for for a while. So we hit it right. And then our staff with their creativity and humility and their ability to tap into, you know, the affinity pieces of, of, understand, uh, of understanding Husky and our, you know, our proud tradition that we have of winning and doing it the right way. So it was like the perfect storm. And, and those events came right on time 
And that was a way we created a vehicle that people saw themselves to be able to contribute and support the program. Because we understand we have to do that from fundraising. So my whole thing is about putting a face on fundraising. And those particular events, the Victory Bash, you know, and Huskies Invest, those things uh, are the pillars of what we do about telling our story and about how much we need the support to be able to sustain the excellence that, that we've seen over the years. So it was a perfect storm, but I got to give the credit to our, our whole team, our Husky Athletic Fund, you know, our senior staff, our department heads, our staff in general. There's so many people to thank in that, and they executed beautifully. Underneath tough conditions, we just talked about COVID, so they had to go through all the COVID protocols to be able to, to deliver the content that end up happening. So folks haven't seen it, get on YouTube and take a look at Huskies, uh, and, you know, just Huskies Invest or the Victory Bash, it'll come up, you'll see some of the video highlights. Okay. Now on the academic side, you have an unheard of 90% graduation rate for student athletes. How in the world did you get that accomplished? Yeah, you know, it goes back to the <laughs> our students, you know. I'm, I'm not in those classrooms, you know. I'm not taking them tests. You know, those are things where, you know, you got to give it to our young people. Our young people are really resilient. You know, they are resilient through some of the toughest times, you know, around COVID. And, and, and the student athletes are one component of our supports or another. We have great supports and we have great, you know, supplemental instruction and tutors and all the things that are necessary. But it comes down to our coaches recruiting the right fit and making sure that accountability and responsibility to the academic mission of NIU. So, so I can talk a lot and say, okay, this is what we did and this is how we made them do this. No. What we've done here is create a culture of accountability. And I, I love the fact because as I stepped through the door in 2013, we were good. I don't want to put any dispersions that we weren't graduating, we weren't doing things, okay? But I also saw going good to great. Okay. And it was really important for me to make sure that that does not, during my watch, get, get uh, minimized or marginalized. So what we've seen during the course of 13 to 2022 of an increase. I came in just under, just over, excuse me, over 2.9 overall GPA okay. to now to a now to a 3.35 GPA over that span. So it's a constant trajectory rising. And that comes with different coaches in our system, different student athletes on our system during the course of, you know, it's been nine, nine years, but the consistent piece is that a culture of accountability by the by the coaches and the student athletes, making sure that this was a fundamental issue that we will maintain. The byproduct is the byproduct is graduation rates. Because when you have departmental GPAs and you're able to do what you need to do, you know you're going to graduate at the end of the day. So so that's been a great thing. And I, I the only thing I take credit about is making sure you hear it all the time. We are here to graduate. We are here to get high GPAs. And that is our secret sauce. That's what makes us a double threat when it comes to being on a campus and winning championships at the same time. And you also sponsor football, correct? That is correct. Yeah, that, we do. That's, so that's if you want to know, if you know anything about that, you know that's a challenge. On top of men's basketball, you know, if you took a, if you look at GPAs nationally with the NCAA, so we really pride ourselves in having an over 
in our in our football and understanding what we're doing with our basketballs, and quite frankly, in all of our all, all of our sports. It's an expectation. Expectation. You've been director of athletics at NCA Division One, Two, and Three. What are the biggest challenges faced by d- the different divisions for an athletic director? Yeah, that's a good question, especially now when we're going through a transformational change. We're going through a, a possibly new NCAA constitution. Um, it's going to change um, even more so. Um, I, 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 do, I don't think there's a lot of change in the mission and vision, right? So being at Division Three at Manhattanville, being at Division Two at Merrimack, and then being in Division One at NIU, right? That's how I look at those lenses. The student-athletes, they want to compete. They want to win. They want to graduate. They want to have high GPAs, all right? I, you know, other than maybe size and speed at some levels in different places, they are virtually very similar, okay? We're seeing the student-athlete voice. We're seeing that folks are being um, um, very intentional about not accepting um, um, uh, being marginalized or uh, affecting human rights. That was consistent throughout the other, other divisions that I've been at. I think the change now is that the visibility on Division One is turned turned up. Okay, we're starting to see a lot more uh, uh, scenarios around the student athlete voice and 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 the flexibilities around pay for play, name, image, and likeness, the transfer portal. The visibility is on the spotlight on Division One on that. You typically are not seeing large uh, spotlights on some of the other divisions because of the implication around money. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, 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 and what can be generated. So I think the differences there are now just about that of, of looking at what the federal legislation is going to look like. If we're going to have something across all state lines, if it's going to reside in the NCAA or at the individual conference level. So I think now with the change, we're at a tipping point. We're at a point where the collegiate model um, is under attack. That's the way I look at it. Um, and I'm concerned about what that looks like, especially for Division One. Uh, and also, too, is it going to serve the mission of helping said individuals who wouldn't have been able to attain higher education if it wasn't for mm. the athletic scholarship? Okay. And obviously, me, I'm passionate about that as an African-American male because I see the impact of what the collegiate model has done for me. And I also see it for the communities that I serve directly when it comes to giving a person a chance. So that is where we are. I think, you know, I don't know if I answered your question there, but it's really changed. It really, it really has changed. The model is, is about to change and it really has changed over time. That, no, that's great information. That's great information. When you are looking to hire a head coach, what are the qualities and skill sets that you're looking for, for someone to join your team? Yeah. Yeah, I've been asked that a lot too. So that's on the tip of the tongue. It's it's that it has to be somebody who's rooted in passionate resolve of helping the student. I, I need to see passion. I need to hear passion. I need to see how you demonstrated passion for graduation and success past sports. Mm. I want to hear it. I want I want you to tell me your story. I want, especially a head coach, from a head coaching perspective, I want to see how you're helping our young people advance to citizenship in today's society. I I, want to see that because I fundamentally believe 
on a, on a, uh, a campus on any campus. I don't care what it is, four year, two year. I don't, it doesn't matter to me. It's really important to be able to set up the different things around leadership to help young people advance to citizenship in today's society. So I want to know what you've done. I want you to give me examples. And I want to tell, I want you to tell me how you're going to use this platform, athletics, this particular program, to be able to help those individuals in life. So that's the difference from the pro model than the collegiate model. Got it. You know, pro model, pay for play, you're here, you get it done. We'll talk about your career, other career aspirations on the side, but you're here to do what you need to do from a professional standpoint. The collegiate model. It's a holistic approach, the co-curriculum, the understanding of the things that, quite frankly, that are going to advance you as a human being contributing to society and using sport as a vehicle for that. So it's very important for the coach to articulate that to me. And then the track record. What have you done in the past? Wins, losses, academics. I want to see it all. And at a certain level, everyone's going to be able to win or everyone's going to be able to do X's and O's. What separates you is how you accomplished said task. And you've got to articulate that in a way so I can feel comfortable that you are going to join the championship culture that we put together here at NIU. Well, we constantly hear people say, I would hire more persons of color or I would hire members of the LGBT community, but I don't know where to find them. You've been able to find them. How have you been successful in this area? It it goes back to intentionality. Okay. If I don't, if I don't want to find something, I won't. Oh, okay. <laughs> if I don't, if I don't want to do something, I don't. Uh, it goes back to that add-in. You know, it's so easy. We've seen a lot. You know, even with the tight budgetary situations that COVID has really, this you know, uncovered, unearthed. You know how fragile a lot of our athletic departments operating in different spaces. That you know we're so quick to maybe cut a sport reduce costs because of fact, that's the easy way, right? The tougher, more strategic way is to figure out how we can add different things, but increase others to make sure that those things that are extremely important don't get cut. Um, DEI or the ability to add people to your staff or your organization is critical for your advancement, especially where Others may be doing some cuts and different things. There's opportunities. You know, Martin Luther King said between that, you know, every, every catastrophe, there's a great opportunity for, for folks to grab hold and advance issues. All right. So I think for me, um, the intentionality that I have is that, okay, we have a blind spot in our organization. This hire has to fill that blind spot, that appreciation of, that inclusive excellence. So we have to go out and be intentional in trying to get that fit so we can advance the things that we need to uh, have happen. And not necessarily in our DEI goals, but in overall goals and objectives of the organization. And if you put it like that, it becomes more of a, oh, we got to really get there because this thing is going to be really important for us to be able to do our our overall goals so we can be the national leader in this particular space. it's at that that level of intentionality around the hiring process is going to get you to where you need to go more times than saying, oh, I couldn't find a person. Uh, this is the candidate pool that I have and I, I got to move this agenda along. So it's more of an intentionality to get there. 
And you developed a large facilities plan when you got to Northern Illinois. How important are facilities in recruiting coaches as well as student athletes to come to a university? Yeah, so I'm a little bit old school on that. I do, I will um, uh, acquiesce to say that facilities are important, especially in today's climate of, of, of being competitive. Um, our facilities master plan had gone through some iterations. You know, we 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 uh, we get here in 13, and then we have a budget uh, impasse in 2015. Right in the middle of it, we don't have a budget uh, for two and a half years. Wow! Uh, and then and then we go into a bit of a lull, and then we get hit by COVID. So we've been underneath this trauma that is financial state concerns. And we've really focused during my time here in growing the annual fund, growing the expectations, winning championships through hires, other types of things, quite frankly, sustaining the operations. That's really been during my era. Our facilities master plan has grown and adapted. We've made some strides uh, in, in facility space specifically for student athletes, right? Uh, understanding, uh, you know, nutrition, uh, our, our nutrition bar, in our, 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 our sports performance uh, uh, areas and making sure that we had the right balance of facilities for our student athletes. So you have an indoor practice center and, and all these other types of things that have come online through the grace of God of our, uh, uh, our donors, the Husky Nation. But I think to, to, to answer your question directly, a facilities master plan and strategic planning is critical because what it does, it, it, it gives us a roadmap. It, it gives us an intentionality about this is where we need to be. And this is the roadmap. And, and if we stay on this course, we're going to be able to add critical facilities and, and goals and objectives that wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily be identified if we didn't have at least a shared uh, 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 communication, understanding, priorities by all. If people don't see themselves in a plan, that it becomes my plan. It becomes ah. somebody else's plan. It doesn't become their plan. Okay. And I think the, the facilities master plan has helped us have a roadmap that we've got to do certain things for Olympic sports, revenue sports, and quite frankly, all those who see themselves in that plan. And we've had great success. We've had some modifications. We have some back steps on that. But uh, the great news is that we've never stayed really still. We've just, uh, when, when life throws life at us, what we do is we adjust uh, and we keep the thing moving. So I'm excited about where we are with that. And now we're digging out. We just announced some some major facilities with our tennis center uh, and also to uh, our soccer and baseball. So that's the newest thing, fresh off the press in the last you know, a couple of weeks. So we're excited that's about great. moving forward. Now you've spoken about Husky Nation. What led you to create the Husky Fan Advisory Board? And what have you learned from it? Well, it's good to have a voice that can tell us uh, our blind spots uh, okay. and to tell us exactly what they're looking for. You know, having that board, having those passionate uh, voices uh, to be able to say, you know what, Sean, you know, th th that particular event it missed, or, you know, we need to incorporate this, that, and the other thing. Okay. The concessions are X, you know, you've got to do a better job there. Uh, the ticket prices are Y, you know, wh what's going on with that? Um, okay, you know, we understand you have to go into Chicagoland area for a game, but we don't want you to move one of our games uh, to Chicago or, or, or some other region. So having that 
particular uh, advisory board gives us a sounding board uh, of understanding and also to buy it, that we are at least doing things in a way where it's meeting the fans for where, where they are. So instead of us in the back room saying, oh, I think this might work for you. and I'm like, No, we need, we need to be able to shoot this across to a fan advisory board, give them a rundown on the different things that are happening within the department, both in the state and in the nation, and to give them a little taste of the decision-making on why maybe the conference or the department or what have you had to make a decision in this direction. So again, it's, 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 a thing, it's something out of respect. It's having a, a conversation and having mutual respect, and you know, and, and obviously these are a certain number of a cross section of individuals that don't represent all of Husky Nation, but they are they are you know quite frankly faithful supporters, and it's good to be able to have that board uh, as another decision making uh, entity within the organization. And then they can also be personal public relations people for you by talking to their friends and colleagues and saying, no, you know, this decision was made because of X, not because of Y. So yeah, no, no, it's true. It's true. I get uh, a lot of either phone calls, text, or, you know, what, can you explain this further? Because I'm having some concerns or someone's called me up with some concerns. I get what you did. Can you give me a little bit more about why now, do you see what I'm saying? So you're absolutely correct. They, they become ambassadors of uh, the Quan, as you yes. would say. Yes. You know, they become the ambassadors of, of the know about what's happening behind the scenes. That's great. That's great. Now, you've served on various NCA committees. How does an athletics program benefit from the director of athletics serving on those NCAA committees? Well, it's good. It's also good for the visibility, right? You know, at NIU, we constantly manufacture relevancy. It's something that we do, and we do it really good. Uh, and when, when I say manufacture relevancy, is that we're fighting in a very competitive market. We get the third largest media market in the country here in Chicago. We had talked about Chicagoland proper. We got a number of other institutions that I won't say on the <laughs> air because... I want NIU to be the central focus there of this interview. But but I will say that, um, you know, I'm, the, I'm not the emperor without any clothes on. I do understand that we need to fight for our visibility, our platform, our ability to talk about what we're doing nationally. Uh, and I think it's important that on these committees that you are there to be able to uh, go through due process of legislation, uh, make sure that whatever is being decided on that you have a hand and a voice to do that, and quite frankly, have a leadership role. Uh, and we have a number of uh, individuals on our senior staff and others that have served on, on, on roles for committees, not just at the NCAA, but uh, all of the other professional associations. Um, I've been on, the, uh, on, a, uh, on an executive board for uh, NACTA, National Association of Collegiate uh, Director of Athletics, and, and LEAD One, which is our FBS uh, advisory group or advisory organization with Tom McMillan. So it's important to make sure that we're out there nationally and that we have a national voice. And, and NIU has done a great job in that because we've got a lot of folks that uh, that have lots of experiences that have provided a national lens on things. Uh, and I'm really fortunate to have uh, our team and our staff to do that. And I'm also fortunate to have been in those roles uh, and have a microphone stuffed underneath my face sometime about wanting to know what I think about that. That's that's actually very humble, very humbling for me 
at this point in my career to be able to do that. One of the things that athletic directors must do is raise money. Can you explain in working in development, what's the difference in the ask for an annual fund as opposed to the ask for a major gift? And then what is the floor amount for a major gift? Well, major gifts, I'll start with that one first, is fresh off the uh, off the presses. You know, major gifts in some institutions can be some uh could start somewhere between 25 and 50,000, right? You know, it depends on where you are. Some people maybe drop it a little lower, uh, uh, maybe 20, depending on where you are at um from from um from different perspectives. My perspective is that all gifts are major gifts for me. Okay. <laughs> and, and you know, I, I and our team really treats it that way. Because I think anyone that is going to give $1 to our university deserves to have a significant uh, support and, and, and appreciation uh, for doing so. Uh, so we blurred the lines a little bit between our annual fund and major gifts, mainly because of the fact that the focus uh, since I've been here is to make sure we sustain and have some sustainable resources to be able to run our department because our institution and our state um, are not able to do that, are not able to uh, give us that type of money to be able to run an operation like us and also to achieve the excellence that we have. So, so the annual fund for us is really important because it gives us that supplemental dollars that, quite frankly, if we did not have, we would not be able to operate. On the major gift side, extremely important. Definition there is that a lot of folks give transformational gifts, and we've had a number of those, those in our history, especially during my time here, you know, when you're able to have a, a, a practice uh, facility, uh, indoor practice facility, which changes the game, especially in the Midwest, uh, we have a, a turf field and, 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 you know, it, it has changed the game on how we can do business. So uh, uh, the, uh, L, uh, the Ken and Ellen Chesick uh, practice facility that we have have just basically transformed our programs. And, and quite frankly, um, have attributed to reasons why we won multiple MAC championship uh, in football. I would say across country. I would say in in in, in soccer. We've won MAC championship recently, uh, and in our dominance in football, you know, is is well documented. You know, especially over the last past twelve years, um, we are uh, the number one winning percentage football program in the state of Illinois as well as in our conference, in the MAC. So when you say that, that's a drop-the-mic moment. You know, I, I'm, I'm really proud of that. Uh, but I also want to say that it, it wouldn't have happened if we didn't have the facilities and the intentionality around our donor base to make sure that we feed the beast, we feed the dragon, and making sure we up-to-date on all of the things from locker rooms to nutrition to practice facilities so that we've made that commitment. And then when you come on our campus, you see it right away. It's right in your face that when you come here, we win championships. We graduate at the highest level and we own the state of Illinois. And uh, okay. until, somebody knocks, until somebody knocks us off, um, I'm going to claim that with 100 wins. We have 100 wins since 2012 and 55 losses. And uh, I'm really proud on, uh, of, of how our alumni and our donors have made that a significant expectations academically and athletically. So, so from the major gift and the annual fund, we blur the lines a little bit, but we've had success in both at a very high level 
by, by the courageous people who have stepped up and who do it on a routine basis here. One of the other things athletic directors work with is licensing, which includes logos and branding. How do you know when it's time to revamp your logos and change up your branding? Well, it's an interesting situation because I, 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 I uh, we're constantly in this, right? There's no such thing as standing still. You're either moving forward or you're moving back. I say this all the time. I think when it comes to the branding piece of it, you can look over my shoulder and see our NIU oh, branding yes. has been significant. And we're really proud of that. Uh, we're proud about our Husky. Uh, we're proud about, uh, about our marks, uh, our cardinal and black, our colors. I think that that's a place where um, tradition, tradition doesn't graduate. Right. You've heard that before. Tradition doesn't graduate. And we want to make sure that our branding, our image, um, it's a, the, the respect, uh, the pride that it fills with our alumni base and our, 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 our current students and fans, that it's there and it's out there in your face. Right. It's not a place that I go. I don't carry my my lapel or my branding around because it's such a part of the culture of what we do here um, to change that. You need to have consensus. I'm not a big one that uh, wants to change things just to change things. We, we've got to make sure that it's an identifiable logo, mark, coloring, and so forth. We do have marks and other types of things that we are retro. Some of the older marks during the different eras, right, that we'll bring back in and folks have nostalgia behind that. We'll make sure that we want to have our alumni base being proud during their era, uh, depending on if they weren't around uh, during the, the some of these new marks, which are really around the late 80s and 90s where some of this stuff was firmed up. But I think it's really important to, to stay true to yourself, know who you are, uh, and to make sure that that tradition around the branding and the color and, and, and things that, quite frankly, people are familiar with. So when they see it, they know, hey, that's NIU. You know, I, I know what that looks like. I know that's their Husky. Um, I know that's their their colors. So I think it's important to make sure that you survey the landscape and that you make sure that you bring people close. So I'm not a big fan of just changing things because I think that you have a, a disassociation when that happens. And people um, are really personal about their institution. So I know that having been at other institutions that I've graduated from and you start changing things without intentionality or purpose, it could backfire. So it's important to keep that theme. It's good to make sure you have a, a, a branding plan and mission that on the national scape that people when they recognize that you're true to that and and you try to grow that we've tried to do that more so especially with our our niu logo that you see in back of us that that we're trying to do a little bit more to differentiate us from maybe some other institutions that have some similar markings so it's important for us to make sure we are consistent with that message one of the other things that gets overlooked is simply policies and procedures and making sure that they are written in a way that is clear, concise, and it's going to stand up in a court of law. How do you go about making sure that that gets done? Because a lot of people just kind of gloss over that. Yeah, so that it's critical. You know, to have consistency about policy and procedures is extremely important. But what's even more important is following your own policies and procedures. Oh, right? yes. Yeah. A lot, a lot of folks have policy procedures. They put it on the shelf. They forget about them. 
then they don't violate their own policies and procedures. And they're in go. trouble. They're in trouble because of the fact that uh, they did not do what they were supposed to do. So I think that that's the first thing, right? First of all, we, you, you got to know they exist. <laughs> you got to make sure that you revisit, you revisit them on a annual basis. And then that you hold people accountable because, you know, a lot of times we put things out uh, uh, and, 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 and we, we, we start looking at each other saying, well, why did so-and-so do that? Well, because they saw one of our people violate the rules and they felt that they can do what they needed to, uh, to do on, on the deal. So I think it's important to have that ongoing conversation and to bring it up. I'm not a big, um, you know, policy as it relates to just create something to create something. Um, we want to make sure we do that to present, uh, uh, prevent any potential liability. You had mentioned the legal side of it. I, I live with a lawyer, so I have to deal with exactly. that. Look me in my good eye on a regular basis. So the law is the law, and you've got to do that, and I understand it. But I think it's a more importantly is that we understand why we did what we did, what we're trying to protect, and how we are going to be able to implement that and operationalize what we said we were going to do. So the only way you can do that is to test it and go through, in, in an annual basis, these different policies or the policy book or the policy uh, online component. So we have lots of that here in the great state of Illinois. Lots of policies. <laughs> we do a lot of those. A lot of checks and balances, right? Uh, and I think it's, it's great that we have certain and others. I don't know if they really are doing the things that they were set out to do. Because as you know, certain policies, people spend lots of time trying to go around certain policies. Oh, yes. So if that's the case, then we probably need to do something different. Uh, but obviously, bureaucracy is a is a part of higher ed, is a part of a lot of state and political uh, operations. So I won't get on my soapbox about that. But I will say that it's important that we live our own policies and that we know what they are. And the best way to do that is to bring them back out for review in a trans in a transparent type uh, a type of uh, a way. So that's the best way I can answer that question. Sean, you lead a 17-sport program, over 400 student-athletes. You're also a husband and a father. What time management tools do you use to also be able to write academic papers, present at national conferences, and you're pursuing a doctorate? Yeah. yeah. How? Well, well, you put it like that, you know, Lord have mercy. I, I didn't know until you told, thank you very much for eliminating <laughs> the, the, the state of the union that, that, that I'm dealing with right now. Yeah. So I often talk about this in the way that I talk about a lot of different things that this is not a job. It is a lifestyle. Okay. okay? Um, I, I, I try to do that, especially when folks are trying to get into the career they want nuggets of um, of advice or thoughts or what have you. So I always start off by saying, this is not a job. It is a lifestyle, okay? So once it's a lifestyle, then you have a different way of engagement. What you do then is you incorporate your family. Your family is extended because then it becomes the coaches, the student athletes, your colleagues, because now you're incorporating, you know, I have three beautiful biological children, two girls and a boy, and I got a dog, and I got my beautiful wife, and everybody is infused in what I do 
on a regular basis. They're not left out. They're, the game, they all come. If uh, there's some other type of event, we all are part of that process. So you cannot separate the two. Once you try to separate the two, that's when you will fall victim to missing out or doing things that will, quite frankly, isolate you away from the enterprise. So to, 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 to lay it on you quickly, it, it, it doesn't dawn on me that it's what you just rolled out. The number of different ways that it's firing off in different directions because it's life. And I've accepted this from day one since I was a sitting athletic director at age 30 and I'm an older individual since then. And but being involved in athletics for over 30 years from a student athlete perspective. So once you get there, and I had a really smart mentor tell me that, Jim Livingood, former athletic director at Arizona, mm-hmm. UNLV, Southern Illinois, you know, Washington State. He, God bless him. He's one, one of the best. He helped me through a lot of this stuff, but he would always talk about the lifestyle piece and drinking from a bihydrant, you know, yes. and understanding how to manage one's time and to understand how critical to be student-centered. So all those pieces are critical on your ability to have your me time and your family time because you have to incorporate that together. So is it tough? Oh, absolutely tough. Can it be done and managed? Yes, it can. But you've got to be able to accept the whole, whole lifestyle. And if you can't do that, this is probably not the business for you. What sacrifices should young professionals expect to make in order to have longevity in this industry? Yeah, so that's a very good question. I often tell folks, um, I'm mentoring a number of folks that are not in my department who, you know, we just have some FaceTime like this, or we pick up the phone call and I say, listen, you have to be upfront and honest with your significant other. You've got to look them in your good eyes. My grandmother would say, God bless her soul in Birmingham, Alabama. You know, you got to use common sense. But you common be, sense. Common sense is one piece. And I've learned a lot from that. Uh, but the other part is that you've got to be honest about, yes, we're going to move around. We, we could go across this great nation. Um, we're going to take some jobs that maybe are, are not the jobs that we're going to reside for the rest of our days, but we need to be able to increase our portfolio and our experience and our oversight to advance in this career. We're going to be in some tough times because financially, depending on where you are in different levels, it might not meet need. And we're going to have to go at this as a team approach. There's going to be some times where we're going to look at each other and say, what are we doing? <laughs> you know, it depends on what the situation is. Right. You know, I've been from the great state of, Maine to upstate and outside of Adirondacks of New York to Madison, Wisconsin, uh, all have very different experiences, but all played a major role in where I am today. So I think that if you're willing to sacrifice some of those things that maybe be more traditional, staying in your region, staying close to your family, making sure that you don't come out of that bubble, that's going to that's going to be something that might have to be sacrificed to get to your final place to where you want to be mm. professional. Okay. And if, and if that's tough for you to accept at this point, it might be a tougher role for you to get to where you need to be. So, so I think that that's where you've got to have self-reflection, self-awareness, 
understanding how to get there. And you know what? You're, you're also going to need some luck because you, the, the smartest and hardest, hardest working individuals don't necessarily advance all the time. Mm. We know that from the numbers and statistics and everything else. Right. We're, we're at the mercy of a lot of different factors. You know, we've talked about some of them uh, today, but I think that hard work does pay off and, and then having an intentionality about never giving up and, and you know, keeping, keeping that hole within you, uh, good things will happen. So I always tell folks like that, hey, you know, this is a tough road, but understanding you have to sacrifice a little bit to get what you want to get to at the end of the day. So that's the best advice I can give right now. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to a young Sean back there playing football at Alabama about preparing for this career journey? Yeah, I don't even know if I could, if I could go back. I, I, I often think about that, often writing a piece on that. You know, I think at some point in my future, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that and just take a time to just kind of reflect on all those people. I think it's a great question. I think you started the process of, of me even thinking about this because, you know, a younger Sean Frazier, if I would just, you know, jump out of a time capsule from now, 2022 to 1987 <laughs> and say, listen, listen, man, come on over here. I got to talk to you, have lunch. Now, I don't even know if he would have lunch with me. No, no, <laughs> no in that cat back in 87. But once I got him, he finally looked at me and says, oh, my God. I've got no hair and, and look like I put on some weight. I better sit down and talk to this cat here because I can be in big trouble if I don't uh, sit down and talk to him. So I, I probably would say, I probably would say, listen, you got to be patient. You got to be patient. You're going to be great. You're going to do some things that you have never thought you were, would be able to do. You're going to impact people's lives. You're going to make a difference because you made it a mission to make sure there's access and opportunities for others. You're going to do these things, but here are some things that you're going to have to do. Patience is, is going to be big, okay? Heartache is going to happen to you, and you can't let it define you. And the last thing is that don't ever give up. You're getting those pieces from Alabama right now, that hard grit, that never quit. You're getting those pieces now. But you're going to be tested. Remember, you know, walk by faith, not by sight. And it's so important that you do that and listen to yourself and listen to people around you when they tap you on the shoulder. That's going to be critical on the end game. So those are the things I'd probably tell myself. Now, if myself would listen, don't, don't know about that. You know, knowing me back in 80, 1987 coming out of high school versus uh, where I'm at today. I, I might just listen to me because I would probably have looked me in, in, and I've used that phone for my maturity. My, my, my grandmother looked me in a good eye. If, if I would have said it to myself, he'd say, you know what? I'm going to sit down and listen to this man. So I was so scared of her. <laughs> so I probably would have sat, sat down and listened. Sat down uh, and listened. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sean, what book do you think aspiring sports administrators should read and why? Yeah, um, there's a lot of books. You know, I, I, 
I'd be upfront. There's a a lot of books to read on leadership, but I really gravitated to good to great. Good to great. You know, yeah, good to great would be, you know, because there's a lot of pieces in there that, you know, the reasons why they're sitting in a division one or been a student athlete or done other experiences, they're good. Okay. But the the ability to know yourself and be self-aware, I think it's captured in a lot of lot of different instances within the book. What app can you not live without and why? That's a good question. That's a good one on that one. Let me see the app that I can't live without. Hmm. Problem is I can live with a lot, uh, live without a lot of apps. <laughs> but yeah, you know what? Um, uh, that's a great question. You know, I don't know if I have an app that I just cannot live without right that's now. That's fair enough. You know, other, other, other than, to be perfectly honest with you, other than my travel apps, right? The different things I need to be able to get ready to travel. I, I don't deal with that. MapQuest is a, is a great example. Okay. Because I'm always getting I'm always getting lost all the time. But yeah, I don't have a, a, a an app that I just say, you know what, I this I need this to get through life because I'm just not that guy. Okay. No. <laughs> what social media sites should aspiring sports administrators follow? Yeah. So at the very least, if you're not on LinkedIn, you need to be on LinkedIn. I think that's how we met a couple of times. It is, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so I would say right away, uh, get on LinkedIn. I don't care if you're undergraduate. I don't care if you're in high school. You need to be able to create a a so- social mobility through LinkedIn because you can tell some stories and do some things and get, gain lots of great content on your future and what's currently going on. Um, obviously, the other social media sites between Twitter and and um, Instagram and Facebook. Okay, those are all important, but I think to advance the overall mission of your particular career. And, and you're upcoming. I, I really do believe in, in in LinkedIn, and I'm not getting paid for it right now to, to say that. But I will say that the content and the ability to interact with my colleagues and my friends and family, um, I'm really respecting that particular medium right now. What motivational movie do you suggest young professionals watch? You know, I, I'm always partial to, you know, uh, there's a number of them that I really do like. Obviously. Jackie Robinson story of 42 that uh, was out. I, you know, saw that a number of times and obviously, you know, what Jackie Robinson had to go through uh, and, and everything to that effect, you know, just really just, just shocks you that this, this man and his family um, had to go through what he had to go through um, to integrate Major League Baseball. So that, that 42 would be um, one. And then there's another movie called The Natural. Uh, mm. which Robert Redford, Robert where, Redford. Where, yeah, which, you know, wow, you know, it's going to be Roy Hobbs. You know, I can, I, I can, I can recite the movie to you. It just brings the the essence of, of greatness, you know, the pure adultery uh, of, uh, uh, of, of just uh, the perfect form of sport. And, you know, regardless if he's 30 something, it doesn't really matter. He's, he's just great. He's, he's the natural. So those two, um, I gravitate to this because of the fact one is passionate for so many other reasons and the other one's just pure, pure uh, excellence when it comes to athletics and uh, uh, he's able to overachieve. So those two would be my my favorites. Sean, what is your go-to inspirational quote? Well, I already gave it to you about walking by okay. faith, not by sight. And not by sight. 
Yeah, uh, I'm going to do that. Get biblical on you a little bit on that because I, I really do believe that because a lot of us, uh, I believe, just don't. You know, they they look at the the site and they you know they don't believe. They don't believe because either they've, they've been blinded. So that would be the first. You know, that'd be the one that I I would go to uh, on on everything I do. Um, obviously, you know, I talked about a little bit too. You know, in, in any catastrophe or adversity, there's a great opportunity. Uh, uh, within that. And um, I believe Dr. Martin Luther King uh, said that, but I could be wrong about that. So I don't want to cite him on that one, but I'll, I'll say that, you know, I think in that opportunity, and, and it's always a good time to do something right. You know, yes. there's, there's a variation of that uh, with, with MLK as well. So those would be the ones that I would, that I use in my normal conversation. Um, I might mess up in some, in some way, but I will say that, uh, those are the ones I live by, too, as well. Sean, your student athletes and staff are very lucky to have you. I thank you so much for this time. You have provided incredible information and insight into the position vice president of athletics and recreation. And this information will be very valuable for a lot of people. We really appreciate it. No, I, I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that the notes you took from our guests will help you as you plan and build your career. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. View from the big chair, examining the cost to be the boss. I'm your host, Marlon Jones, and I thank you again for listening.